You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Tell someone the title of my sermon this morning, The Savior's Heart for the Lost. The Savior's Heart for the Lost. Church, I'm a little excited today because it's men's ministry after the service. You know, that's why, as Elder Benji was mentioning, I was, I'm wearing the, this lumberjack outfit because we're going to go cut some wood and hunt animals or something. I think that's what we have planned, right? Yeah, I get a thumbs up. That's amazing. Uh, well, again, all the men, if you're, if you're able, uh, please come out to that. Whether young or old, whatever season of life that you're in, come out to that men's ministry this, this afternoon. Again, as mentioned, next week we do have a prayer service, and we invite everyone to come out to that and pray. Specifically, next week we're praying for our Easter service. Again, that is one of our biggest services of the year. Last year we had the most turnout of people that, uh, that we've ever had at our at church and uh, to that Easter event. And so we want to pray that lives would be changed by the gospel, that the gospel would be proclaimed, and those who need to come and hear it would be, uh, would be here, be, would be present with us and be saved. Again, get the invites to the back. Use it to, to give out uh, physical invites to friends and family and the lost in your life. Now, with that said, we are going back into our um, series in the Gospel of John and our study in the Gospel of John. Uh, so far, we've been this entire time studying in chapter 7 and going through this narrative of Jesus at the Feast of Booths. And and remember that, this whole scenario of how his brothers told him to come up with them to, to Jerusalem, but, but Jesus said no, and he was working on God's timing, and eventually he does go up, and with specific purpose. All of this, of course, all to demonstrate that Jesus was so in sync, so in step with the Father's will. So in step with the Father's time. Remember the thesis of John's gospel is in John chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Remember, John writes this entire gospel with evangelistic purpose. He wants people to read this gospel and truly come to faith, come to believe that Jesus was indeed the Jewish Messiah, the Son of God, and, and by believing they might have life. And part of what it means that Jesus was the Son of God was that he was equal to God in nature, in power, in authority, and also in will. Jesus was so obedient to the Father's perfect timing that he didn't leave early and he didn't leave later than he needed to, to go down to Jerusalem. The Father's purpose was the, the, the preeminent agenda on Christ's mind as we've been reading and as we've been studying throughout these past few weeks. And we understand that, that the purpose of why Jesus had to leave at that specific time was so that he had access to the temple in order to teach. And of course, last week we were talking about what he was teaching, how to discern what is truth according to our passage from last week. Now, this passage, our passage this morning really gives us the ultimate purpose as to why Jesus needed to teach all of that, why he needed to come to Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths. And it says in verse 31, yet, again, it says in verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. Jesus had a divine appointment, why he had to be at the temple during the Feast of Booths. Similar to a couple of chapters ago with the Samaritan woman, where, where Jesus meets her at the well. There was a divine appointment there to, to interact with her. And similarly, he had a divine appointment to teach 
with the purpose of winning some, winning those, some of these, these Jews at this feast to the faith for them to believe in. Now, we're going to unpack all that in a moment, but as, as we'll see in our passage this morning, a, a big theme that we'll see is that is the Savior's heart for the lost. The Savior's heart for the lost. A heart that sincerely desired the lost, the sinners, to repent and believe, to come to faith. Again, hence why he had to come down to Jerusalem. And just by a side note, note it's, it's not just by, it wasn't by way of miracles that these people were going to come to believe. There was no miracles performed here, at least not recorded in the Gospel of John. Yet, again, people came to believe in him. It was simply by the preaching of the Gospel. This example of Christ is the same that is the example that we ought to have, the same heart that we ought to have when we when we come to view the loss. See, oftentimes I think we, we fall into two well, not most not most of us here, I'm sure, but oftentimes, at least in the public sphere, the Christians fall into two categories when it comes to unbelievers or to the lost. Either we are befriending them, we are loving them, we are to the point where we are enabling sin. To the point where our moral values are are no different than the world's. That's one extreme. Or the other extreme is that we have nothing to do, them, to do with them. We just stay in our Christian bubble. We just stick our, hang out with our Christian friends. Those are two extremes. We don't see that extreme here in our passage. What Jesus depicts in our passages is a sincere heart for the lost, the kind of heart that we ought to have. And church, my hope for us this morning as we unpack our passage is that we learn from the Savior to condition our hearts to be the same as our Savior, that we would not go to the extremes of what we just talked about, but to be motivated in our heart, just as Jesus was, that we, to, to reach out to the lost, that we would not be complacent to the lost, to the condition and to the suffering of the lost. And at the same time, I hope that we would be reminded of who our Savior is, the Savior who is sufficient for our salvation, the Savior who... who, who whose heart beat for us and who saved us and moved so that we might be saved. And I think this is perfect time for, for Easter in just two weeks, right? Easter is just two weeks now. And then with this whole campaign of inviting people to come, this is where our hearts ought to be when we are looking to invite people to the, to the Easter event or just when we're sharing the gospel. And so my hope is that we would reflect the Savior's so let's unpack our passage this morning. Let's go from the very top of our passage in verse 25. It says in verse 25 of our passage, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Remember last week we left off where Jesus was teaching in the temple how to discern what is truth. And the people were amazed at the authority of his teaching because, again, he wasn't, he, he wasn't bringing any formal rabbinical teaching. He wasn't referring to the rabbis or the other or ancient uh, uh, extra-biblical texts. He was just teaching from the authority of uh, the Father and the Word of God. And, of course, Jesus taught them how to discern truth. And so that they're sort of putting that into practice. They're sort of trying to sift through everything that Jesus has been teaching and saying, is this really the Messiah? He's, and and he, they bring up some good points. He's preaching publicly, but no one's arrested him yet. Why is that? Is it possible that the Jews, remember Jesus, or rather John, rather, 
He refers, when he refers to the Jews, he's talking about the religious elites, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin of the day. And, and so they're saying, uh, if, if, could he really be the Messiah? If, if no one's arresting him, he's, he's preaching publicly, but no one's arresting him. Could it be that the Sanhedrin, the Jews, already know or have decided that he's the Messiah? It's like this conspiracy was going on that they were talking about, right? Like, you know, the flat earth or... Uh, uh, or, or the, the moon landing, or China's involvement in the Canadian elections, right? Conspiracy, right? Yeah, but, but, but nonetheless, the, these people had, had grounds for, for this kind of thinking, because if Jesus was indeed a fraud, the religious elites would have arrested him already. Again, the question comes to mind, could the Jews secretly have already decided, the religious elites, could they have already decided that Jesus was indeed the Christ. But whatever the case, John's point in this matter was that the people were divided over their opinions about Christ. And we even saw this last week. And, and, to, and, 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 and Jesus adds further reason to why they were divided. And look at verse 27 with me. It says, but we know, this is the, the, the people talking once again, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Now, this thinking, this mentality actually comes from a misinterpretation of the Old Testament. The, the, the sort of the Jewish norm or thinking of where the Messiah was going to come from was that he, was, he would come suddenly and that no one would know where he was coming from. Even though in the Old Testament, we read in Micah chapter 5 that the Messiah would come or be born in Bethlehem. If you read Micah chapter 5 verse 2, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathat, you who... Who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Even though that was clearly already stated in the Old Testament as, as, as messianic prophecy, the people of Jesus' day still had this mentality that Jesus would, or the Messiah would come suddenly. And no one would know he was coming from. And that was coming from a misinterpretation of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. They took that word suddenly to mean not knowing when the Messiah was going to come. Although, even if you read it in context, it's better interpreted as not so much unknown origin, but unknown timing. So the people were confused. They knew where Jesus came from. Remember, his brothers were most likely there at the feast. They knew that he was from Nazareth. But Jesus' response to this, and I love this in verse 28. Look at that with me. Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and in him you do not, or rather, and him you do not know. Now, there's something great about this passage because that word proclaimed, it's better translated as scream or cried out, rather. In the original Greek, it's kradzo, meaning to, to shriek aloud, similar to how a, a, a bird would shriek aloud, and, and, and this was often used to express a deep emotion. Jesus was passionately crying out, you know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and you do not know him. I love this because Jesus is saying, 
Just because you know me and where I come from, just because you know that I'm from Nazareth, you know who my brothers were, you know who my parents were, it doesn't diminish the fact that uh, I am the Messiah. It doesn't diminish my claims as the Christ, but rather enhances it. Jesus was not a Messiah that, was, was, that suddenly came, that was detached or was far removed. Jesus was the Messiah who grew up with them, who lived among them, who did life with them, who experienced all the ups and downs of life with them, who, who experienced the storms of life with them. Therefore, he was more intimately aware with their plight and their need for salvation. Remember in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Remember, this, this, whole, uh, this whole celebration was during, or this whole scene takes place during the celebration of the Feast of Booths. And thematically speaking, it fits with the occasion. The, the, if you recall for the past few weeks, the Feast of Booths was to commemorate Israel's time in the wilderness where the Lord, or the Lord God provided for their needs, where they were led by, by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, representing the presence of the Lord. But yet, as we read in Exodus 17, despite having the presence of the Lord visible to them, the people still asked, is the Lord among us? Is the Lord among us? And here was Jesus now, the answer to that great question, Eternal God who condescended the incarnation, clothed in humanity, and who lived among us. They haven't known where Jesus came from, did not diminish his claim as the Messiah. It enhanced it. Here is the Christ, here is the Messiah who lived among you, who knows your plights, who knows your needs, who knows your troubles, your spiritual bankruptcy, and has come to save you. Not only that, but Jesus even says, right? But I have not come of my own accord. I'm not here by my own will, but because of the Father's will. Because of the Father's timing, because of the Father's sovereignty. The Father wants me to be here. He sent me here. This is a divine appointment to bring you hope. Similar to the sent- this is similar to the sentiment back in Exodus once again, where at the burning bush when God speaks to Moses, where God says in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of Egypt. This, this, this is the same sentiment that Jesus is trying to communicate to these people. Jesus came down by the Father's will because he knew their plight. He knew what they were experiencing. You knew of their spiritual suffering, their spiritual bankruptcy, and their need for salvation. Hence why he came, to, uh, came down. He who sent me is true, and in him you do not know, Jesus continues. At face value, this could sort of sound condemning, right? You don't know him, but I know him. But coupled with verse 29, when he says, I know him for I come from him and he sent me, there's a little bit of hope there. You do not know the Father, but because Jesus does, because he knew the Father, and because he came from him at his will, because he was sent by the Father, then you too can know the Father. You too can know the Father. Jesus was preaching a message of hope. And what was the message or the result of this message of hope? Look at verse 
30 with me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Talking about God's sovereignty once again here. God's perfect timing and and will for, for, for Christ. In verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The end result of this message of hope that Jesus came to bring at that specific hour, that specific place at the temple during the Feast of Booths was that the people believed. Their statement at the end there where, where they're saying, could, could the, if, when the Messiah comes, could he do more than what this man is doing? That's a, a rhetorical question. The answer to that is no. Those who believed did not think anyone could exceed the works of Christ, the teachings of Christ. The people believed as a result of this message of hope. Now, as we continue, John contrasts that exchange with that group of people with the next section, the next, section, the next group of people, the Jews, the, the, again, the religious elites. Look at verse 32 with me. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. They still wanted to arrest Jesus. They still wanted to kill him. That's their response to this message of hope that Jesus brought to the people. In verse 33, it says, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. In one sense, Jesus is speaking about his limited time left in his earthly ministry. This was taking place at the last year of Jesus' earthly ministry, right before the Passover and all the events leading up to Easter. Again, his appointment at the cross. And at the same time, in another sense, what we glean from this, this, this statement that Jesus is making is a sense of urgency. I'm only here for a time. Repent. While I'm here, repent. While I'm with you, repent. Because where I'm going, you cannot come. We see the hardness of hearts from the religious elites in verse 35 to 36. They say that the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach to the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. As we learned last week, revelation of truth comes from the leading of the Holy Spirit comes from having the Spirit to teach us truth so that we would understand the teachings of Christ. These people did not get it because these people did not believe. Now from this, we get a glimpse of the Savior's heart for the lost. And and firstly, what he demonstrates in our passage is a sacrificial pursuit for the lost. A sacrificial pursuit for the lost. Of course, chapter 7 has been talking all about God's timing and the reason for God's timing and how Jesus was in step with God's timing. And of course, that reason, the why, as we've been mentioning, the reason why Jesus had to be at the temple was so that he could teach or preach the gospel and so that people could believe. Now, all throughout what we've been reading so far and studying in chapter 7 is all the obstacles that Jesus had to face, whether it was from his brothers, whether it was from the people who just wanted to see miracles, or ultimately where it was from the religious elites who, who wanted to arrest him and kill him. All the way back in verse 1, it says, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go to Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Of course, this is because of the events that took place in chapter 5. 
Yet despite this evident obstacle, this, this threat upon his life, Christ went and preached, all for the pursuit of those who would believe this day at the Feast of Booths. Now granted, you know, as we've been talking about, Jesus was functioning under the Father's timing, under the Father's will that was keeping him safe. John keeps repeating that all throughout this chapter. They were, in verse 30, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But yet, despite, despite having been in the Father's will, despite being in the Father's timing, the reality is it did not diminish the very real threat on Jesus' life. It did not diminish the very real dangers that Jesus faced for having gone to Jerusalem during this time. The, the real dangers that would, would send any lesser man hiding and fleeing from the task. But because Christ's heart for the lost, his love for them, he sacrificially pursued the lost, despite this, even this obstacle, this threat of, his, of, of death over his life. Jesus was putting his life on the line just to share the gospel, just to pursue even the handful of people who would believe him that day. And of course, we, we know the extent in which Jesus would sacrificially lay down his life for the lost. That would eventually lead to the cross, where he would willingly give his life for sinners, fully displaying his heart for the lost. This is the lengths in which Christ has, has gone through to pursue sinners, to pursue us. Now, in the same way, our hearts ought to be the same. In the same way, our hearts, to, our, our hearts ought to have a same passion for the lost, that despite whatever obstacles we might face, that we too would go out of our way, out of our lifestyle, out of our comfort zones, just to proclaim the gospel to those who might be saved. We'd be willing to face whatever obstacle. And this is Paul's, Paul's heart in, in 1 Corinthians. His heart in 1 Corinthians, where, where he is imitating the, the, the heart of Christ. It says, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, and I might win more of them. To the Jew I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. That I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. That I might win those outside the law. And I love what he says here, verse 22. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I, will, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. That's a heart that reflects the Savior's heart. A heart that is willing to go to the ends of the earth. A heart that is willing to, 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 be, to be weak even as Paul declares. In the eyes of men, just to be able to reach the lost. And I, and I get it. We, we deal with this all the time. It's the, the fear of rejection. The fear of being ostracized. It's the fear, the, the fear of embarrassment. That often is the obstacle that often causes us to hesitate in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ to lost loved ones and friends. But what is your embarrassment? What is your rejection compared to an eternity in hell? What is your momentary rejection from 
unbelievers compared to eternity under the wrath of God. We must have a sacrificial pursuit for the lost, setting aside our own preferences, our own pride, becoming weak as, 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 as Paul described it to the world, becoming foolish, he even describes it in another, in another text, just so that we could communicate the wisdom of God. Secondly, our passage demonstrates the Savior's heart in a way that, in which it demonstrates a sincere desire for the loss. A sincere desire for the loss. Verse 28 is very key to our understanding this text. It gives us, it gives us the tone of how to understand our text this morning. Pro, again, pro, proclaim is not the best word in verse 28 to, to translate or to use in our, in our text. Again, our, our passage says, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. But in the original Greek, once again, the original Greek, the word there is kradzo, meaning to scream, to cry out. It relates to, to a, a loud shriek in, 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 in sort of... Uh, in imagery, it, it gives the idea of shouting like a bird, shrieking like a bird, to express deep emotion. This word kradzo is the same word used during Palm Sunday, what we're going to be celebrating next week, where the people were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, please save us. It's the same word used when Pilate asked the people what to do with Jesus, and the people cried out, crucify him, crucify him. It's the same word that Matthew uses towards the final hour of Christ on the cross, where it says Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. What's in common with these scenes? The commonality between these scenes is intense emotion, it's agony, it's desperation. Again, remember, it means a deep emotion, it's expressing a deep emotion. So, in, this, in, in that sense, we, we get a sense of what Jesus is trying to communicate in our passage. Jesus is displaying a deep emotion beyond, uh, beyond simply proclaiming this good news of hope to these people. It was a desperate, sincere plea for these people to repent and believe. Remember the context of our passage. The people were doubting Jesus' claim as the Messiah. Again, they were confused with this idea of the Messiah coming suddenly and, and without knowing where he's coming from, uh, appearing suddenly. So no one, again, no one knows where he would come from. The confusion, the doubt, comes after three years of Jesus' earthly ministry. After all the miracles, after all the sermons, so many signs done, so many wonders done, yet the people still doubted. People still didn't believe. The people were still confused. Now comes the final year of Jesus' earthly ministry, knowing full well his hour was soon to come. His hour would soon come where he would be crucified and lifted up. So Jesus cries out, You know me. You know where I'm coming from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. This is a desperate plea from the Savior. You know me. You know where I'm coming from. I've been through it with you. I've lived through it with you. You can trust me. I'm one of you. Believe me. I'm not here on my own accord. The good news is that I was sent to proclaim this news from the Father. 
from the Father's will. The Father wants you to hear this hope. You who sent me is true. Remember, they were trying in the in last week in our in our passage last week. They were trying to figure out what was truth. Jesus is saying, "My Father is truth." And he goes on to say, "You not you you don't know him, but I know him. You don't know him, but you can know him through me. Believe." Jesus was demonstrating a sincere desire, sincere plea for these for these people to believe in him, to repent, to turn to God. This is the same sentiment that we get from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, where God himself says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. This is the holy, holy, holy God, creator of the universe, who is above all, yet he's coming to sinful Israel, sinful man, and inviting them to reason with him. He says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be made as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, crimson, they shall become like wool. This is the holy God reasoning with sinners. Similarly, believers ought to have the same sincere desire to see the lost come to faith. To come and taste that the Lord is good. Believers ought to have a, a similar desire for, for the lost to meet our Savior. I mean, why wouldn't we? we? We ought to have that same sentiment as Christ in our passage. If we ourselves have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that he is a living hope, the best hope for humanity, the solution to our sin problem, why wouldn't we want others to connect with him? Why wouldn't we want others to have a relationship with him? You don't know him, but we do. In addition to that, can I suggest maybe perhaps the reason why Jesus was proclaiming so passionately to these people to repent and to believe, to believe his identity as the Messiah. Can I suggest maybe the reason why Jesus was proclaiming this with such passion was because his brothers were in the crowd. If you remember at the beginning of the chapter, his his brothers were unbelievers. His brothers went down to the, to the Feast of Booths too, to Jerusalem, as we read earlier in the chapter. Good chance that his brothers were listening to him speak to his unbelieving relatives. It's the same sentiment that we should have if we knew that our siblings, our loved ones, Grandparents, our uncles, our aunts, our cousins, our closest friend was an unbeliever, was lost. We ought to be passionately proclaiming the gospel. If we know that the only way to escape the wrath of God, hell itself, was through Jesus Christ, why wouldn't we passionately proclaim, sincerely proclaim it? A lot of preachers avoid preaching about hell or talking about hell or speaking about it, thinking that they, they, they would offend people. Offend people. How do you offend people? By warning them about it. Warning people about hell is the most loving thing that you could do. The most loving thing you can communicate to the lost. Believers must have a sincere desire to see the lost found. 
for unbelievers to believe, for sinners to be saved, to be reconciled to a holy God. Lastly, we see a glimpse of the Savior's heart demonstrated in our passage. We see the aspect of a sorrowful rejection of the lost. A sorrowful rejection of the lost. Notice the difference in tone from verse 28 to verse, 20, or to verse 33, rather. Between the people who believed, the, the common people who believed, and the Jewish religious authorities who did not believe, who will be the ones who will eventually crucify Christ. We just read verse 28, look at verse 33 of me again. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me, where I am, you cannot come. There's no, there's no proclaiming there, there's no crying out there. He's just simply stating a fact. Almost resolved to their fate. Because despite everything, again, all the signs, all the sermons, despite even the religious leaders being the ones who have studied the word of God, they still wanted to arrest and kill Jesus. They still did not believe. Jesus' statement there is more of a relinquished statement rather than desperate. I won't be here long. I'm going back to the Father. Then you will try to find me, but you won't. Because he cannot come where I'm going. More, again, more, more than just a, a, a statement of fact, this is actually a denial of entry. Where I'm going, you cannot come. That's what Jesus is saying to these religious elites. Where I'm going, you cannot come. When you try to find me, you will not find me. And it's sad. It's sad because despite saying all of this, despite all these teaching all these teachings and despite even this warning from Christ, they still did not get it. They still did not understand. Again, it's the Holy Spirit that regenerates the heart so that we might understand the truths of God. But even after this statement, the Jews were still hardened so much so that they were questioning what Jesus was talking about. Is he going to the Greeks? Is he bringing the teachings to the Greeks, to the dispersion? They did not understand. Of course, we read Jesus' real sentiment towards the religious leaders and the Jews of Jerusalem in his day. In Luke chapter 19, after the great triumphal entry where Jesus rides in as the, the crown or the proclaimed king riding on a donkey, he stops as he overlooks Jerusalem. Luke 19 verse 41, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. It grieved Christ, knowing that despite everything that he had taught, despite all the miracles, despite even having the word in their hands, that these people still did not believe. We have to remember that God does not send people to hell maliciously or without feeling, like an unmoved judge. He does so sorrowfully. He does so with grief. And listen, if, if the Savior himself weeps at the thought of sinners going to hell, how much more his disciples? His disciples should too. It should break our hearts to know 
that people are going to hell. It should wreck us to know that loved ones are going to hell. Like the Savior, we should feel sorrow for the lost. Instead of sometimes we feel angry, right? The world is going downhill. These heathens, let them, let them go. I know I'm guilty of this. There's a lot of things in this world that we can often have righteous anger towards. But believers should never delight in the loss going to hell. Never. If you truly, listen, if you truly understand the wrath of God that you have been saved from, you would not wish hell on your worst enemy. If you truly understand the riches of God's grace and mercy to have redeemed the people who did not deserve salvation, who did not deserve salvation from his wrath, then you would not wish hell on anybody. That sorrow, that sorrow that we feel in, in knowing that people are going to hell should motivate us even more to share the gospel, to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Of course, all of, all of this that we've been talking about, this heart that Jesus has been depicting throughout our passage this morning has, is all driven by love. Love drives the Savior to be sacrificial. Love is what makes the Savior plea sincerely, desperately for these people to repent and believe. Love is why the Savior rejects the sinner with so much sorrow. And love is what ought to motivate us as believers to go and proclaim the good news. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, the Apostle Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Then verse 20, he says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, we be reconciled to God. There it is again, that desperate plea, that appeal we implore you, a desperate plea to be reconciled to God that we believers ought to be making to a lost world. The invitation for us this morning is clear. If we are lost, if you find yourself this morning or listening to my voice and you do not know Christ as your Savior, we implore you, we plead with you to believe. Believe in the Savior who lived among us, who, who lived amongst us, who, who went through the same trials that we have, who, who had experienced the difficulties of this life, yet without sin. Believe in Him. Believe in Him as our, your only hope for a reconciled relationship with the Father. Believe in Him that His his life, his death, and his resurrection was sufficient for us to have right standing with God. And for the found, for brothers and sisters, the invitation for us is to go share the gospel to the lost. 
Take every opportunity. Every opportunity. This past week, uh, we had a, a relative pass away on, on face side of the family. Suddenly, my understanding, they are having family dinner. A man had a heart attack. Left behind kids in elementary school. The moral of the story is that, our, as the Bible says, our life is like a vapor in the wind. We never know. We never know. Our, our, our life is just on loan from the Father. We never know when, the, when God will come and collect. But take every opportunity, every opportunity, Share the gospel with the lost. Sacrificially, sincerely, share the gospel. Again, you know, we've been talking, invite people to Easter. The gospel will be preached there. The gospel will be proclaimed there. We need to tell them of the Savior who lived amongst us. The Savior who knows the struggles that we experience in this life. The Savior who, who has gone through it all and who is with us. And sympathize. Tell people the good news of Jesus Christ. And church, let us pray that our hearts resemble the Savior's heart for the lost. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, first and foremost, we want to thank you and praise you. As we were reminded this morning of your sacrifice that we might have life, that we might have reconciliation with you. We thank you, O Lord, that we were reminded of the joy of our own salvation that our Savior passionately pursued us despite our own sinfulness, despite our own wanderings, as your word says, Lord God, that we were not a people, but then you made us a people, that you called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. We praise you and we thank you, O God. But as we recall, O Lord, the joy of our own salvation, I pray that you would burden our hearts for those in our lives who are still lost. That you would burden our hearts so that we might seek and desire for that same joy and that same hope that we have would be passed on to the unbelievers around us. Lord, would you grieve our hearts for the lost just as your heart is grieved? Lord, would you put a desire in us, Lord, to see lives changed by the gospel, to reflect your heart, O oh Lord, Father, we, we admit that we get so self-centered, so self-absorbed. So we get so caught up in our life, in our reputation, in our pride, in our own struggles that we forget, oh God, the necessity of sharing the gospel to others. So help us decrease so that you might increase. 
Help us to die to self that we might live in Christ. In the boldness, in the courage, in the confidence of the Savior who despite the threat on his own life, who despite all the obstacles, despite even the, the, the amount of sin that we have produced, still willingly gave his life up for those he loved, for sinners. Lord Jesus, help us be like you, we pray. In Jesus, your mighty name. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.